A website is never finished, especially a B2B tech website. Welcome to Forward Slash, the podcast that explores how B2B tech companies can leverage their websites to achieve fast, efficient, predictable, and scalable growth. In each episode, I take a big issue affecting the B2B tech landscape and then pick the brains of marketing leaders around the world to learn how the issue affects the questions B2B tech marketers should be asking about their websites and how to answer them. Let's get into it. April Dunford, Serial VP of Marketing, respected keynote speaker, well-known for, for your work in product and, and company positioning, especially in, in the B2B tech industry, um, and obviously author of the, the wildly popular book. Obviously awesome. How are you doing today, April? Thanks. That's a good intro. I like that. I'm doing good. How are you? <laughs> Thank you. Uh, I'm doing fine. It's probably pretty obvious. I'm really excited to speak with you. Just pick your brain around positioning. I think we're in a really interesting time now that I think has repositioned to positioning, if you will, uh, you know, just after kind of the reality that hit last year and and all the, the, the shifts that are taking place, especially in the B2B SaaS uh, landscape. But just to kind of take a step back, I'm curious to learn about you. What drew you to positioning? And just kind of curious about the journey that that brought you to where you are today. It's been a weird winding road. I didn't study marketing. I studied engineering. But my first job that I got out of school was a, was as a product marketer at a startup. And even that's weird because, you know, back then working at a startup wasn't cool. So I joined this little tech company and I was a, I was assigned a product. And the reason I got assigned to it is like, I'm the new gal and they give me the product that was dying. The idea was we were going to shut it down. And in instead, I had done a, some talking to the customers and, and a bit of research. And instead of killing it, we decided to attempt to reposition it. And we floundered around with that. Our process to get there was not what I would do now, but we ended up repositioning it, relaunching it. The thing was really popular. We made a lot of money on it. We ended up getting acquired by a really big company in Silicon Valley. And then I became the vice president of marketing, which was kind of hilarious in itself. And then they gave me a bunch of new products and said, hey, you know, maybe you want to reposition these too. And so I was like, well, okay, but maybe we'll do it properly this time. Because last time we were just fooling around. And, and I figured marketers know how to do this. And I don't know how to do it because I never went to marketing school. So I started having coffee meetings with all these smart marketers that I know, and I'm reading books and I'm working at the big company. So we got an education budget. So I go back and take some post-grad stuff. And what I discover is we talk about positioning. We know what positioning is. Positioning is this fundamental marketing concept. And yet there exists no methodology for doing it. And that just blew my mind. And so then I sort of embarked on this multi-year kind of, well, I should be able to figure this out. Like, you know, we're all doing it. It's not like we don't do it. We do it. We just don't do it in a consistent way. So after years of thinking about it and trying different things, I ended up with the positioning methodology. And in the late part of my career as a VP, you hired me because I knew how to do that. So, you know, if we were in the interview and you were a startup, I'd say, I think you have a positioning problem. This is what I mean by that. And this is what I'm going to do to fix it. And I would get hired for that skill. So I became like, you know, positioning was my jam. And then seven, eight years ago, I made the switch from being in-house to being a consultant. And it just made sense that positioning would be my thing. And it took me a couple of years to figure out how to actually 
package that as a consulting engagement, but now that's all I do. Thanks for taking me through that. Um, I've been listening to your podcast rounds a little bit, and I've read your book. And Mm -hmm. one thing that I would um, like to kind of cover first, just so all listeners are aligned, is you, you have some opinions on what positioning is and what positioning isn't. And there are some phrases that you don't like to use, or at least marketers aren't using them properly. And that's, that's the discrepancy between positioning, uh, positioning statement, brand positioning. Can you take me through what you don't like about how marketers are talking about positioning in general today? Yeah. I I think positioning is not very well understood in general. Mm. Uh, A lot of times when you say positioning, what people are really talking about is messaging or, or even more specifically, sometimes when people will say, Oh, that's like a tagline. <laughs> I like, know, mm-hmm. man, it's way more than that. And then there's this, you know, the, the word branding gets thrown around as almost anything. So in my opinion, branding is completely separate from positioning. And in fact, it's an input to positioning. And I can't do branding until I understand what the positioning is. And that would be an input. Like, who is the brand for? What does it represent? So in my mind, positioning defines how your product is the best in the world at delivering something, like some value that a a well-defined set segment of customers cares a lot about. That's what positioning is. And so it defines who's my competition? How am I different? What is the value that I can deliver that no one else can? Who's my target market for that? And what is the market category that I intend to win? And that is that is an input to messaging. Like if you were to say to me, April, like, you know, we need new copy on the homepage, you know, we need messaging. I'd say, great. Well, who's it for? <laughs> and what's our differentiated value? Because that's what we're trying to communicate. And, you know, who are we positioned against and how are we differentiated from them? So I would need all that stuff to do messaging the same way I would need it to do branding. We don't just cook up branding out of nowhere. My branding, if I am a, a, a children's school, is very different than my branding if I'm a university. Like mm-hmm. I kind of need to know the positioning first before I can do all these other things. So I kind of see positioning as like an input to a lot of these things it gets mistaken for. So if we were to positioning versus messaging, let's say we're, we want to take like an account-based marketing viewpoints, multiple buyers in a group, right? Let's say it's an enterprise SaaS. Yep. Every persona, will, you know, the buyer group is going to be a uh, pretty diverse set of people. Mm-hmm. messaging for each buyer that's anchored in the positioning? Is that mm-hmm. how that would work? Here's my opinion about positioning and personas. If we think about it, so so I have this positioning and this positioning is essentially the answer to the question, why buy us versus the other alternatives, right? This is positioning kind of sums this up. And so if I think about this, like in B2B, typical B2B purchase group, there's there's five to seven people involved, like different personas. So first of all, there's what we call the champion. So this is the person who's been tasked with, go do the evaluation, find us a a solution. Um, You're going to have to work in these other seven or eight personas, but you're sort of leading the purchase process, right? Making a short list, going around or whatever. And then you're making Mm -hmm. a recommendation up to the economic buyer. Usually the economic buyer is different. Sometimes it's the same, but usually it's different. It's like their boss or whatever. This is whoever holds the budget. 
And so, mm-hmm. you know, they matter too. And then if I'm selling to a line of business, well, IT might have to get involved because they might say no if it doesn't do some stuff. And then you have end users of the solution and they might get involved because you want the end users to actually use the thing. And so there's all these personas. But when we think about positioning, the champion is the person that you talk to first. So this is a champion is making a short list and the champion is driving the thing around. The champion actually cares a lot about you. Positioning has to matter for the champion because if we don't get on the short list, I don't even get to talk to any of the other people. I got to win them first. So in the work that I do, it's very focused on this champion. Everybody else is a source of objections generally. IT can kill the deal. End users could kill the deal sometimes. Purchasing could kill the deal. Legal could kill the deal. Your, your economic buyer, the boss, might kill the deal. But it's objection handling is what I'm doing. So good positioning rings true for the champion because I got to get them. And then in my sales process, I'm arming the champion to handle the objections of all these other personas. If That's I had right. understood that, 20 years ago, (laughs) the way I understand it now would have saved me a lot of heartache because I've seen companies try to do like positioning for all eight personas. And that's crazy town. Like we actually don't need to do that. We need to focus on the champion position for the champion. And then we need to arm the champion to handle the objections of everybody else. When do you recommend that companies actually take advantage of properly positioning themselves? Is that right off the bat? Is it after mm-hmm. they've gotten some customers under their belt? When have you done it? And, and when when do you recommend companies? Yeah, that? that's a great question. Huh. First of all, it, you're positioned whether you like it or not. Like even if mm-hmm. you never worked on it, whatever, you, you still have a position. The customer is doing it, it for you. It, right. It, you don't do it deliberately. So that's one thing. Um, the second thing is when I got a brand new product, like let's say I got something and it's not out yet. You could go through the process of, of positioning it, meaning I could say, well, look, like, I think this is the competitors I'm going to compete against. And, and this is how my product is different than them. Therefore, this is the value that only I can deliver. Therefore, these are the kind of customers that are really going to love it. Therefore, this is the market I'm going to win. But it's a guess, right? Because you Mm -hmm. haven't, you haven't launched it yet. You don't know. It's not based on anything. So what you have is a positioning thesis at that point. Now, You launch the product, you get a first wave of customers. And part of what you're doing in that first wave of customers is you're validating the thesis. Like, was that true? (laughs) My experience with that, having launched like, you know, more than a dozen products in the market back when I was a VP, um, is we're always wrong. Sometimes we're really wrong. Sometimes we're just a little bit wrong, (laughs) but we're always wrong. And then we got to adjust, right? After I'd done this a bunch of times, I was like, you know what? We actually don't need to nail the positioning before we've launched because Mm. we know it's going to change. It's good to have a thesis. It's good to write it down. So then we know what we're validating. But if I think about how I'm going to position in the market, like I actually want to keep the positioning kind of loose because I don't know where to tighten it up yet. And mm-hmm. so even though I have a thesis that I think it's going to be this, sometimes it's better to just widen it out a little bit and let's just see where the market pulls us. So like I have this terrible example in the book. Let's say you design a fishing net, right? And and your thesis is this is the world's greatest tuna fishing net is for catching tuna. Now I could launch it like that and say, you know, world's greatest tuna fishing net, only tuna fishermen will buy it. 
Maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. Or smarter thing, in my opinion, would be I launch it and I say, it's a net for fish, all kinds of probably big fish. And then I launch it and all kinds of fishermen try it out. And maybe what I discover is, you know, let's just see what they pull up. And maybe what you find out is like, oh, grouper. It's actually amazing for grouper. Who knew? I wasn't thinking about grouper. I don't know anything about grouper, but now I know. And so then after I've gone, then I can say, oh, okay, well, it's actually not a tuna fishing net. It's a grouper fisher net. And then I'm going to tighten that up and go run at the grouper fishing market. So I think if we're talking about getting really tight on the positioning, you want to have a wave of customers first and then tighten it up later. At the beginning, I think it's good to have a thesis and you should be validating the thesis, but it, you might not actually present that thesis to the customer. The positioning that you're using to get the first wave of customers can be a little loose. Cool. Thanks for taking me through that. I would like to dive into kind of the the granularity of, of uh, the framework you've outlined in the book. There's like a five plus yeah. bonus step flow. Um, would like to dive into that, but I'd like to frame this with just like a, a, a little background before we dive into it. And that's basically just the reality of, of B2B SaaS in the aftermath of, of 2022, right? Mm -hmm. Even, even before 2022 happened, uh, you know, B2B SaaS, hyper-competitive, right? Especially if you're in MarTech, sales tech, that, that industry, yeah. hyper, hyper-competitive. Um, but now that we're in 2023, there's been this Return to rigor is what I'm seeing. A lot of uh, people mentioning on LinkedIn, shrinking markets, longer sales cycles. It's harder to get people to open their wallets. And then this whole understanding of the dark funnel and how 80% of the journey is happening behind the scenes. So taking that into account, I hopped onto Google Trends and I popped in those phrases that we talked about earlier that you don't like, but I just wanted to get like a, an understanding of the trending. Looked at positioning, positioning statement, brand positioning product positioning. Yep. And they all pretty much say, uh, follow the same trend line over the past 20 years. There was a spike in early 2000s and it actually declined a little bit and it held stagnant up until the beginning of 2022. And then there's an increase in search interest starting at the beginning of 2022. Do you find that as a coincidence or is the writing on the wall and, and people are understanding that something's got to change here? Yeah, that was kind of a loaded question. I yeah, so so interesting. But I I I give you a, a a bunch of ideas. Marketing, I feel like, goes through these kind of waves. We'll have you know a wave where people are really interested in creative stuff, and you know, and 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 branding is really hot, and we're and we're worried about the colors and the and our feelings and stuff. And then we'll move to the opposite end of the spectrum and be like, no, man, it's all about the numbers. <laughs> and then, you know, and then it'll be the opposite of that. Like, oh, now we're, you know, we're the pendulum we, swings. Yeah. Like we go to the other way. And then we're the, mm. so if I look at sort of um, roll, roll the clock back to like 2010 uh, to maybe 2020, like this was kind of the, the, the glory days of growth hacking. Right. Totally. It was mm -hmm. like, we were growth hacking. We're not marketing. We're growth hacking. And it was this hacky shit. And, and I call it shit because <laughs> it's really short-term thinking. 
right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I got a metric, I'm trying to juice this metric. So like all the case studies are like, you know, how we improved, you know, landing page visits by 9,000%, you know, using this growth hack or how we, you know, increase whatever by 89 million percent doing this thing. It was always percentages and breaking the funnel down in these little bits and trying to move one little number and then hacking around until you figured out how to move that number. What I think happened as a result of that, and now I think if you went back and talked to like Sean Ellis or any of the original guys that cooked up growth hacking, I think they would tell you like, that's not what we meant. <laughs> it's funny you bring that up because I actually had their head of growth on a month ago and he's like, we're actually campaigning because we're realizing that people are taking this wrong. So they're, they're actually making it, a lot of Yeah. Pie. Like people, yeah. Have, people have taken that concept and done things to it that it was never meant to do, but that's what we were doing, right? What we have now is kind of a pendulum swing back to like fundamentals, right? Instead of getting so granular, I'm trying to move this one little number and this one little thing, you know, people are moving back to, and positioning is very much like that. It's like back up and say like, but are we a database? <laughs> you know, it's very different than how did I improve this metric by 9 million bazillion, you know, but what I've seen is that I think a bit of return to fundamentals <clears throat> in that, you know, we, we can't just be super tactical. We actually have to look at our overall marketing strategy and like, are we targeting the right people? Is this really the value that we can deliver? How do we win? Why pick us over the other guys? <laughs> and that is very different from what we were doing. If you roll the clock back 10 or so years ago, it was it, like, it was really like, you know, number soup, right? Yeah, I completely agree. We were taught by the, the by big tech, like, uh, HubSpot and, and Salesforce. Marketing's always been looking for a way to report on ROI. Now we have this ability, let's just hack away at right. Right. that part of the market that we can actually track. And it's like, for the past 10 years, we've essentially just been going after that 3% that are actually in market and completely neglecting everybody else. And, it, and like, that's a whole nother conversation. That like brings yeah. in the whole like demand creation versus demand capture. Um, how would you describe the state of positioning right now? Like, I, I think marketers in general, they understand positioning is key. It's one of those basic things, but we take it for granted. Um, yeah. do, do, do you find that, uh, the percentage of marketers who understand it equals the percentage of marketers who practice it? This is an interesting thing. So it's funny, like it used to be, if a conference organizer called me and said, Hey, April, you want to speak at my conference? I say, Oh yeah. And they say, what do you want to talk about? And I say, I'm going to talk about positioning. And they'd be like, Oh, like, don't you have something cool to talk about? Like, <laughs> like there was this idea that there was like this old boring shit and, and, and we knew everything there was to know when in fact, literally no one was doing it. I never joined a company where they said, Ooh, we did a positioning exercise to like figure this out. <laughs> like yeah. nobody was doing it. So there was this idea that it was just kind of happening. Like positioning was just happening. It wasn't a thing that we did. It just happened. Mm -hmm. So now I think it's different. So I think there's, there's a lot more like awareness of like positioning is a thing and, and we can do it it doesn't just happen to us. <laughs> like we can actually influence what that positioning is and we can change it. We can reposition something. Um, so, so that's shifted a lot, I think in the last bit. And then, mm -hmm. and then there's all these people like actually like positioning consultants, holy smokes, there's like a million of them. 
now. They're filling up my inbox. Whereas when I started, I literally, I was the only person like, like there were agencies and the agencies would say, oh, we're going to redesign your website. And part of that is to do messaging and positioning. But what they would really do to get that positioning part is they would come and ask you, so who's your target market and what's your value prop? And uh, how are you, you know, like, mm -hmm. who are you for? Like, and they would just ask you. So they weren't doing it for you. I'd literally see these agencies that have these questionnaires and you're just supposed to fill it out. And so same thing with like the positioning statement is the same thing, right? That that is not a methodology for doing positioning. It is a very crappy way of writing your positioning down. It assumes you know the answers, right? Like mm -hmm. there's a blank in there. We are a blank for blank for blank. There's a blank in there and it says market category. I could position any product in a thousand market categories. How do I know mm -hmm. I got the right one? This is the question I'm trying to answer, right? And this drove me nuts as a marketer. Like I went and I took this course in a university and the guy was talking to the course on positioning and he literally put up the positioning statement and he says, you just fill in the blanks. And I'm like, you're kidding. Like, and I had just repositioned something. And so I like put my hand up and I'm like, dude, like we thought it was desktop productivity software, but then we repositioned it as embeddable database for mobile devices, pretty different. And so mm -hmm. how would I know which one of those when I'm doing this exercise where I just write it down? And the guy literally said to me, trust me, April, you'll just know. And I was like, dude, no, <laughs> might work like that here in the classroom, buddy. But out there, we don't just know. <laughs> like we thought we knew and we were wrong. So anyways, I think there's more awareness now, you know, mm -hmm. I think I had something to do with that too, because, you know, the, you know, I got a book out, I'm out on the speaking circuit. And so, you know, like before I started talking about positioning, I didn't feel like there was a lot of people talking about positioning, but sometimes it works like that in marketing. Like one person starts talking about something and people are like, yeah, you know, I never really thought about that. Yeah. And so now there's all kinds of people talking about it. Um, so that being said, I would like to dive into kind of the nitty gritty of, of what you're practicing around positioning. Could you take me through what signals do you look for? Is it usually a company comes to you like, we think we have a positioning problem or is it April? Yeah. Can you tell us if we have a positioning problem or what does that look like? So let me give you two things. When I was a VP marketing, I get hired. And what everybody wants me to do is smash my foot on the lead gen gas, right? But I don't want to do that until I figure out if the positioning is good or not, because if the positioning is no good, then I'm just pouring water in a leaky bucket. So what I would usually do at the beginning is listen in on first sales calls. I would wander over to sales and I would just listen in on calls. Now it's so easy. You got gong. You don't even have to wander over. You just listen to the call recordings. And weak positioning sounds like this in the first call. You got a sales rep, sales rep is good. Sales rep gets on the call, customer's on the call, sales rep's pitching away. And like five minutes into it, the customer's making this face. And then they're like, back it up, go back to the beginning. Go back to the beginning. You can tell there's just this fundamental confusion. Like, I don't know what this thing is. And, and the rep is past that, right? It's all pitching value or whatever. And they're like, no, 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 go back. back, 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 back. Go back to three slides. <laughs> so you hear that. Like, what the heck is this thing? I can't figure it out. Or worse and, and much more common, customer gets on and says, yeah, I know what you are. You're just like Salesforce. And you're not like Salesforce. You're nothing like Salesforce. <laughs> and the mm -hmm. rep is like, no, 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 we're not that. No, no. Uh, the other one you'll hear is like, you'll get this objection that sounds like this. It's like, yeah, I get it. I get it. But couldn't I just use my spreadsheet for that? Like, why would I pay for that? 
Like, the, mm-hmm. so there's a bit of like, I get what you are. I just don't get the value. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't, I don't get why anyone would spend money on that. And so if you start hearing that, and at the same time, you got customers that are happy, like super happy and your churn is low and, and everything looks good over in customer land. And when you go talk to them, they're like, this thing is amazing. You will pry it from my cold dead fingers. There's this gap between what customers know and what a prospect is hearing in the early part of the funnel. And that's a positioning gap, right? This is what, what you are, but these guys aren't getting it. If I was hearing that in a first call, then I would be like, we should probably back up here and revisit the positioning. If I'm not hearing that in the call, then maybe the positioning's all right, right? So now you go to me, you know, so here's me as the consultant. Now, occasionally I'll get one where they'll come to me and they'll be like, you know, it doesn't sound like the problem they have is a positioning problem. So occasionally I do get a few of those and I disqualify them. Like sometimes I'll get a company come and I'll say, so what is it you're trying to do? And they'll say, well, you know what? Like, we don't have a problem with the sales pitch. Like everybody that hits sales, we close them. Close rates really high. Sales pitch works. We're just not getting enough at bats. Like we just, we just need more people coming in the funnel. That doesn't sound like a positioning problem to me at all. <laughs> like mm. you got a great story. Sounds like you got great positioning. You got lousy lead gen and you're going to have to go fix that. <laughs> you mentioned uh, people can get stuck. You have the five-step process. Would it make sense to go through those five steps? I'm assuming it's one of those five sure. steps that they're getting stuck. Uh, however, you, yeah. you think it's best to approach that. Yeah. So the way I approach positioning is let's bust it into pieces, solve for the pieces, and then smash them together. And so we know what the piece parts of positioning are. They're kind of like the blanks in the positioning statement, right? So there's five things. It's it's competitive alternatives. If If you didn't exist, what would a customer do? It's differentiated capabilities. So what do you got that the competitors don't have? And then there's differentiated value because customers don't actually care about your features. What they care is the value that those features deliver for your business. And then we're not selling to everybody. We're selling a particular segment of customers. So there's, you know, my, who's my target customer. And then the last, the fifth piece is market category. Am I a desktop productivity software or an embeddable database for mobile devices? Mm. So those are the five things. Now, once you split them apart like that, you start realizing that the things are all related to each other. So if I say, you know, what is my differentiated value? Well, the, the value that I can deliver for customers that no one else can is super dependent on my differentiated capabilities. Like that's where it Mm -hmm. comes from. We don't get to make it up, right? So those two things are tied. But then when you think about it, differentiated capabilities are only differentiated when you compare them to an alternative. So those things are all, I can't figure out one without knowing the others. And And then if I say, you know, who's my best fit customer? Well, that's a customer that cares a lot about the value only I can deliver. So those things are tied. And market category is... If I think about it like context setting, it's the context I position a product in such that this value is kind of obvious to these people. So I can't figure out market category until I know value and target. So all everything's got a relationship to everything else. Where do you start? This was the difficult part is figuring out how do I start? And um, how I got out of this was I got really into jobs to be done, Clayton Christensen stuff, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. was trying to figure out what the intersection was between positioning and that. And, and where I landed was we actually have to start with alternatives because if we start anywhere else, then what we end up with is positioning sounds good in the office, but you take it outside and it doesn't work because you are insufficiently differentiated from the competition. 
So we actually start, so here's how the methodology works. We start with competitive alternatives. If you didn't exist, what would a customer do? Or put another way, what do I got to beat in order to win a deal? So that includes anything that lands on a short list, the things that look just like you, but it also includes the status quo, right? Which is using a spreadsheet or mm -hmm. doing it manually or whatever. I got to beat all that in order to win. So, so I start there. That's my stick in the ground. That's what I have to beat in order to win a deal. Then I say, well, what do I got that they don't have? This is differentiated capabilities. And this is easy. I can make a great big long list. Here's all the things I got that the, that the alternatives don't have. And then, then once I have that, then I can go down that list of things. And for every feature, I can say, so what? Why, why, why does a customer care about this feature? And translate it to value. And while I'm going down that list, what you'll see is the value will theme out into buckets. And that's good mm -hmm. because we don't want 9,000 points of value. We want two, we want three. And that's my differentiated value. That's how I get to that. And then once I have differentiated value, then I can say, all right, I'm the only company in the world, the only software product in the world that delivers this combination of this plus this plus this. Not everybody cares about that the same. So what are the characteristics of a target account that make them really, really care a lot about the value that only I can deliver? That's my definition of a best fit customer. So now I got that. And then once I have that, then I can say, okay, like I got this value. I got these people I'm trying to communicate it to. The market category is kind of my starting point for a conversation. So am I better if I call this thing a database or a data warehouse? Is this a robot or a self-driving car? And so what is the context that helps customers understand this, help these kind of customers understand this value. Is there a standardized practice or types of questions or like who you ask in order to gather this, all of this information? So we, we talked about how, you know, you can talk to the sales team, the customer success team, the product team, what have you. There's probably some interviews with customers there. Is there an approach that, that you've come to, to like that, like, 50% customers, 50% internal or something. I have a super controversial hot take here. Ooh, what is it? If you're B2B, right? And and particularly if you're big ticket B2B. So it's kind of a complicated sales process. I probably have more than <laughs> one conversation with you to get you closed. And there's salespeople. Then we actually know a lot about customers. Sure, sure. And one thing we absolutely know is who do they compare us to? So we know the first step. We know it. Sales knows it. Now, here's what's funny. People don't agree. Most bad positioning actually comes from the root cause of it is people internally don't agree on who the competitors are or who you have to position against. You're saying with even with the data, they don't agree on it? Or is uh, it they need to well, get the Well, here's data? the thing. Nobody asks sales. So you got product managers, right? Product managers think about competition in, in a different way because they're worried about the product roadmap. And so they're worried about competitors that, that might pop up two years from now or three years from now, right? So they're, they're thinking, so, so how do they figure out competition? They Google it, right? They're Googling mm -hmm. and they're finding all these companies and saying, oh, geez, well, how are we going to be different than them? But, but in positioning, I don't have to position against a ghost. Like if my customer has never heard of that competitor, I don't have to position against them. Easy. So if I go ask product, who do we compete with? They're going to give me this great big long list. And it's not going to look like the list we get from sales. Marketers, they're terrible. And I say this as a marketer. The marketers will say, 
Oh my God. Our biggest competitor is blah. And it's whoever's spending the most on marketing. I see they're everywhere. Doesn't mean your customers see them, right? Doesn't mean your customers. Doesn't mean they're targeting the same accounts. Doesn't mean anything, right? So that's the first thing, right? Where do we find out the information we need for this starting point of who do we have to position against? We get it from sales, right? So then the second thing, differentiated capabilities. How are you different than, than the alternatives? Who knows this? Product knows this. Hmm. Sales doesn't. <laughs> Marketing doesn't. <laughs> Product does, right? That's their job. It's their job to look at all the competitors and look at our feature set versus their feature set, whatever. They know this better than anyone else, right? Then we're going to translate that to value. Now, if we're going to translate it to value, we really need to understand what a customer thinks is valuable. Generally, this is a this is Inside the company, people know this, but it's in pockets and it's all over the place, right? So sales knows a lot because they know what closes a deal. Success knows stuff that goes wrong after the sales. <laughs> they can tell you some stuff. Product is out there doing interviews with customers and things like that too. So they understand some stuff. Marketing knows what, what gets them hooked. And then you got a CEO or a founder. They're probably out talking to customers all the time too. They know some stuff. So what people want to do is they'll say, oh, well, we're going to do this research where we go out and we ask the customer what our value is, and they're going to tell us. And that is stupid. Stupid, right? Mm -hmm. So let me tell you all the ways that's stupid. One, half the time, because I've been working these products that are really techie, right? If I got a feature that's amazing and does an amazing thing for customers, but my sales rep doesn't understand it and my sales rep doesn't pitch it, it is very likely my customer will never use it. And so then I'll go ask them, what's your favorite feature? What's the value we deliver? Will it come up on that list? No, it won't. So we actually have to own this. Customers are experts in pain. We are experts in solutions, right? So we should not be doing customer research on anything in my opinion, other than their situation, this pain and the situation around their pain that allows us to understand how we might provide value. But if we think we can go out and just ask customers, like, what's so great about us? And they know that better than we do. That's cuckoo town, man. Like that's, that's no, people will say like, no, we have like, there's all these things we don't know. We're going to have to go do customer research. And I'm like, oh my God, like the number of times I have literally funded customer research to go out and come back and tell us what we already knew. It's because we're scared. Maybe there's something we don't know or something. If you're really early stage, that's different, right? Like you don't know anything. You just launched the thing. You don't know anything. You don't know what people love, what they don't do. You haven't done enough deals to even know that, right? But if you're an established company, you're in market, you're making 10 million revenue, like, and then everyone's like, oh, we got to, first we got to go do customer research. I'm like, why? Like, what, what are we going to get from that that we don't know already? Mm -hmm. And so that's my position on that. Ooh, people don't like when I say that, though. Now, here's the thing. If I don't have a sales force, like, let's say I got a zero-touch sales motion, or even it's a light sales motion, right, where I basically close a deal in one call, when, so the reps are a bit more like order takers than they are sellers, then we know nothing. And we do have to go and get that research, because otherwise we don't know. We're just guessing. We have no idea. But if I have salespeople and they're doing their jobs, like they know 
what the status quo is in the account. They know who we're getting compared to. My product people know where we're better. We should have enough customer understanding internally that we know what's valuable to our customers and what isn't. So we should be able to do the translation to value. Is, is there, um, it's an integrated effort. It's an aligned effort. Is there any one department that should own positioning? Is that marketing? I'm assuming they're usually the ones that probably, or yeah. is it sales that probably feels the pain point first, but I'm curious, like, what does that conversation yeah. look like in, in getting everybody aligned? Yeah. So how I always did this stuff is it needs to be cross-functional effort, you mm -hmm. know, partly because everybody, each team has something to bring to the table and I need that. Right. So I want to pull the info out of everybody's brain. So I need sales, marketing, product, customer success. I need the CEO founders in the room. We need everybody so I can pull from them. But also because when we get the positioning at the end of the day, we need everybody to be aligned on it so we can all go execute on it and row in the boat in the same direction. So in my opinion, we can't do this as anything other than a cross-functional effort. If it's something that the marketing department cooks up, sales will never adopt it because it's because it's probably wrong in some way because sure. <laughs> it didn't get take their input. Or, you know, the CEO will be out there telling a different story, you know, and it, it, it's very hard to make it stick if you don't do it as a cross-functional effort. But then you have this thing of like, once you've got the positioning, somebody needs to be this, what I would call the steward of it, mm -hmm. right? So who's ensuring that we're consistent on it? Who's the keeper of it once we're done? And that's usually marketing. More specifically, this is the job of product marketing. If I could distill product marketing down to one thing, it's that, right? It's, it's we work on positioning. We're the keeper of the positioning. We're ensuring that everything we're doing is aligned with this positioning. The other thing that the steward of positioning needs to do is make sure that we're checking in on it regularly because it's going to change over time. So we're going to release new versions of the product that's got new capabilities. That capability might change the value that we can deliver. So once we do positioning, we need to check in on it because it's going to change. It changes for a lot of reasons. So one is my product changes. So I have new capability that translates to the new value. If it's a big enough shift in value, then I'm going to have to go back and change the positioning. I might have new competitors come into the market. So, you know, I, they weren't there when we did the positioning, but now they're there. And we, sometimes we got to shift the positioning to account for that. Sometimes you'll get like big things happen, like we go into a recession. And so mm -hmm. things that were valuable when times were good, sometimes changed and the value is different when times are bad. Like, so in B2B, you know, we're, we're helping you make money or we're helping you save money. That's kind of all we can do. And when times are good, make money is always a winner over save money, right? Everybody's trying to grow. But when times are bad, a lot of times people aren't trying to grow. They're just trying to conserve cash. And so all of a sudden saves money looks pretty valuable. So whenever one of these shifts happen, you're going to want to get the gang together and check in on your positioning and see whether or not you got to change it. And so if it's product marketing that owns positioning, it's them, you know, that books the meeting and says, hey, we got we to get together and have a look at this thing. Given how tumultuous the last couple of years have been, um, I, I feel like there's been a lot of opportunities for companies to reconvene and be like, we need to change our positioning. Does that, yeah. do, do, do you recommend it be, is it like whenever something major happens or is it let's reconvene every quarter or something just to make sure we're still rowing in the right direction? So what I used to do is every six months. So we do it okay. twice a year regularly, whether something's happening or not, we just do a little check-in. Because sometimes sometimes we don't know until we get everybody in the room, like especially if something's happening in sales, because we're not always asking them, right? Mm -hmm. So we, we get everybody together 
and and we wouldn't we wouldn't get everybody together and redo the positioning. We're just going to do a check-in. So we get everybody together and we're like, okay, competitive alternatives. Same as the last time. Is this still the right list? Are we seeing anybody different? Anything, you know, differentiated capabilities. Has that changed? Maybe someone caught up to us. What was differentiating last year, six months ago is not differentiating anymore because they did a release or we did a release. And so we got a thing. And then, you know, does that change? Is it big enough that it changes the value buckets? And if the mm -hmm. answer to any of those things are, yeah, there's a lot of changes. Well, okay, now we may, maybe we need to go back. We're going to rework the positioning. But if none of that stuff has really changed significantly, then we'd like see you in six months. Unless something big happens, like, you know, big new announcement, big competitor comes in the space, then you might convene the emergency meeting. Right. So we, you, we don't know how, how much this stuff is going to shift. I had this product. This one I was telling you about that we repositioned as embeddable database for mobile devices. That when I was uh, writing my book, I was like, I should look up whatever happened to that product because we got acquired by a big database company called Sybase, and then Sybase got acquired by SAP. Hmm. And so the last I heard, that product was an SAP thing. So I got an SAP site, and there it is, still there. And nice. the PC's not that different. <laughs> and it's, you know, 25 years has passed or whatever. There it is, same thing. Whereas Positioned for the future. <laughs> I guess. Most of the time that, that would never happen, right? Like, so, like, I'll give you another, the opposite example. So I worked at this company and we had this, another database thing. And we had a strategic relationship with MySQL. And so our positioning really leaned into their stuff. Anyways, that worked great for like, six months. And then they got acquired by Sun, which was a bummer. We had to go back and revisit, you know, so we called the emergency meeting, like, how does this impact the positioning? And then, and the answer was quite a bit. So we had to, we had to redo the positioning a little bit. And then that worked great for about, I don't even know how long, like six months or something. And then Sun gets acquired by Oracle. <laughs> we're oh like, God. Shit. So, so we had, <laughs> so we had to go back to the drawing board again. And not only that, it was bad. Like, Oracle was making all these noises, like we're going to kill MySQL, the open source community's freaking out. And it was like, ah, and MySQL was at the center of our positioning and we had to kind of pull it out. Like, so we did two major repositions, Well, we did the first one and then we did, and then we repositioned it twice. So three positioning things in like a year and a half, two years, gotcha. which is, which is outrageous. But how would you, you know, how could you predict that? Totally. Um, thanks for taking me through that. So I wanted to dive into the misalignment issue. And this is, uh, let's say a company has, they've properly positioned their product or company, what have you. It was an aligned effort, marketing, sales, customer service, product, CEO, everybody's in on it. It doesn't stop there, right? Business success yeah. doesn't just come from simply aligning around a position. There obviously needs to be like an aligned communication strategy from That's that right. position. Yeah. But given, like, as we've been talking about, given how fractured many go-to-market teams are, I'm assuming getting teams to properly harness the position is like a project in and of itself. I think you've been working on something here. I'm curious, what kind of insight can you provide there? And where do you see the ball being dropped most often once a position is actually um, aligned upon? Yeah. So great question. So, uh, so, so here's what I see. Um, so when I started doing this work... Um, as a consultant, um, one of the things I noticed is if 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 we just did the positioning stuff, you know, five components, work our way through it, get everybody aligned on it, marketing usually could go do their thing after that. Like like mark because marketing, the, the core of what we're doing in messaging and and all the stuff we got to do in marketing is really around 
differentiated value and 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 best fit customers. So if mm-hmm. I'm going to go build campaigns, I need messaging. If I'm going to build messaging, the core of that messaging is differentiated value for these target customers. So marketing is usually happy at the end of that piece. So you go off, do the messaging, whatever else. But sales has no clue how to pitch it. <laughs> and so this is where things would fall down. So marketing would go, and be like, oh, this is great. I get differentiated value. I'm going to write messaging. Da-da-da. We're going to do all this stuff. And then, and then we generate all these leads and then we, and then we throw them over to sales and then you peek in on those sales calls and you're like, what's going on here? (laughs) They're not telling the story the way we're telling the story or worse and more common is they're not telling the story at all. Like they're just doing Mm -hmm. a feature walkthrough. They're just like, you clicked on the button that said, give me a demo. And that's what you're getting, buddy, a demo. And there's no narrative through that. There's no attempt to position the product. There's no attempt to position it versus the competition. It's, we're just putting you in the wind tunnel of features. And it's up to you, Mr. Customer, to figure out why those features are valuable, what's differentiating, what's not differentiating. And it's up to you to figure out the answer to the question, why pick us over the alternatives? Mm-hmm. This is bad, right? So positioning is literally the answer to that question. Why pick us over everyone else? So we need to put it in a form that sales can use. Otherwise, they don't know what to do with differentiated value. If you say this is the differentiated value, they're like, okay, so what? So what we actually need to do is take that positioning and translate it into a sales pitch. And so in the work that I do with clients as a consultant, we do the positioning stuff and then we do this little storytelling thing at the, at the end where it's like, okay, now how do I pitch it? So if I'm stuck in an elevator with a customer and I got to tell the story, like, how do I tell the story? That's been a big focus mm-hmm. of my energy the last couple of years. I've always done that with clients. I did that back when I was a, a VP, right? This is how we test positioning. We take the positioning, we turn it into a sales pitch, and then we test it with customers. It's the easiest, best most expedient way to test your positioning and get some real feedback on it. So when I started doing this work as a consultant, I wasn't sure did we need to go do that part or not, because maybe we know how to build a sales pitch and stuff, but we would do it anyway, just so that, you know, we'd make sure that sales had what they needed. And so one of the things that I discovered from doing this work, and I've worked with like 200 companies now, no one has a structured way of building a sales pitch. This kind of Seems amazing. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. You think we would know how to do that? And so I was always worried that people were going to say, oh, but we use the whatever methodology for building this. There is nothing. There is nothing. Interesting. So I went back and did a review of like, you know, state of the art of sales materials. So I went back and read all the sales books that that you have to read, right? Like the new strategic selling and spin selling and, you know, and all these salespeople go through uh, Sandler sales training. So I went and had a bunch of coffee meetings with all my people that I know that have done, that have been Sandler certified and all the sales training assumes that a pitch exists. What they're actually training, they're training you on all the other hard sales stuff, right? Like how to handle objections, how to move a deal along, how to negotiate pricing and all these things that are super, super hard sales skills. That's what they're focused on. But this idea of like, how do we build a story is the the idea is the story exists and and we're going to teach you all the other things. And then what's hilarious is it's like, well, if the story exists, who's building it? So you go to sales and they're like, well, that's kind of a marketing thing. But then you go to marketing, they're like, that's a sales thing. And so instead, so what you have then is you got this sales pitch that has existed since the dawn of time. 
No one knows where it came from. No one knows why it is the way it is. No one knows why it's a structure. And every time we have a new release, we jigger it a little bit. And these pitches are feature walkthroughs. It's like, here's a feature, here's a feature, here's a feature. So I think we could do way better than that. Thing I'm spending a lot of time on right now is trying to teach people a methodology for building a sales pitch. Like, so now you got the positioning, I got to turn that into a sales pitch. How do we do that effectively? Is there anything that you'd like to share as far as like what that looks like that you're working on? Yeah. So in B2B, we lose 40 to 60%, 40 to 60%, half-ish of our deals to no decision. And no decision is not, if you dig at the data, that no decision is not necessarily a vote for the status quo. It's not like we went out and we looked at everything and we decided the thing we're doing now is fine. So therefore we're not going to buy anything. No, what, what mm -hmm. actually happened is we went out, we looked at all the alternatives and we couldn't figure out what to do. Now, here's the thing you need to know about B2B selling. The champion, remember we talked about personas before? Mm -hmm. It sucks being the champion, right? And usually the champion did not choose that job. Usually the champion got assigned that job by their sure. boss. It's like, go buy us some accounting software. And the champion's like, shit, I don't want to buy accounting software. What do I know about accounting software? I'm an accounting software user, but like, I don't know who the players are in accounting software. I don't know who's good and who's not. I don't know what's possible and what's not possible. I have no idea what my purchase criteria are. And, and if I make a bad decision, bad things happen. Right. Like, like if I recommend something bad to my boss, then I'm going to look stupid. Right. And, mm -hmm. or the end users in the accounting department are going to hate my guts because I picked that stupid thing. And like, maybe we fail the audit and, and I get fired for picking that stupid thing. So this is a high stakes decision generally made by a person that knows that has never purchased a thing like yours before. So they don't know much. And so this is why things end in no decision. Because this guy looks at a bunch of things, makes a short list, does a thing. And then there's four or five choices here and they all look the same, but I don't want to pick the wrong one. What we're doing now is okay, right? The easiest thing is to go back to my boss and say, look, now's a bad time. Mm -hmm. I looked at them. They all look kind of the same. They don't look that different than the thing we have right now. It's not worth doing. We're in the middle of the audit. This is a bad time of the year. Boo, 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 whatever the excuse is, kick the can down the road. No decision. Mm -hmm. So our job, if we believe that and we understand that, our job is to give that champion what they need to confidently make a decision. And what they need is a map of the whole market. They don't actually need to know just about you. They need to know about everybody and where you fit and why they should choose you versus the other guys. And so a really good sales pitch has a little setup part at the beginning where you're essentially saying, look, here's all your options, right? And the pluses and minuses of these options and oh my God, look, there's a gap here. And that gap is actually super important to you. And we are the people that fill that gap. And so now what I've given the customer is, is a guide to the whole market so that they can feel confident I picked the right thing. Because I didn't just learn about you. I learned about everybody and why I should pick you versus everybody. Most of the time, we're not doing that in a sales pitch at all. We're just talking about ourselves. And so my sales pitch structure starts with this upfront bit, which I call the setup. There's this little setup where we're talking about our insight into the market, like how we look at 
you know, the root cause of the problem or the problem, like what's really important to solve here. And then we're looking at the pros and cons of all the other choices for different kinds of customers. And we're getting alignment with the customer right at the beginning. Like, look, like if, if this is really what we're trying to do, and these are all the ways we could do it, knowing what works and doesn't work in the market, like a perfect solution should actually tick these boxes. It should do this, 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 right? Mm-hmm. And then if the customer's like, right, well, then you got them. And all you got to do for the rest of the pitch is show how you do that. I can give you an example if you want. Please. Yeah. I use these guys as an example all the time. Recently acquired by Salesforce. They're called Level Jump. And so what they do is sales enablement software. That's what they do. So uh, software to get your reps onboarded, trained, you, you know, get them, get them up to speed. Hmm. And so terrible market, all kinds of competitors, like a bajillion hmm. competitors in this market. And they all look the same. Well, that, they don't all look the same. The competitors fall into two buckets. They're either essentially a CMS, like a content repository, and where you can keep track of, you know, who's using what content and make sure you got the right content and it's up to date and whatever. Or it's a full-blown LMS, a learning management system where I can create a course, you can take the course, you get certified on the course. These are your options, right? Or you just put some stuff in a shared drive. It's the other option. So, okay, those are the options. Now, their big differentiated thing is they're the only sales enablement software that's built on Salesforce. So that's their differentiated capability. So so let's do the positioning. The alternatives are CMS, LMS, put it on a shared drive, differentiated capability. They got a whole bunch of stuff, but the biggie is it's built on Salesforce. So then we get to value. So what? Why do I care that it's built on Salesforce? Well, the cool thing about having your sales enablement software built on Salesforce is you have access to Salesforce data. So now I can actually show whether my sales enablement improved time to first deal, time to make quota, all these sales metrics. So that's the, that's their jam. So they're selling to the head of sales enablement. Now, the way uh, 99% of these pitches look, they would say, oh, hi, I'm Level Jump. Let me show you my sales enablement software. And I'd be giving you product walkthrough and show you all these features, right? Here's how you do training and here's how you upload the training and here's how you do the whatever. And at the very end of that, you might say, oh, here's how you measure the training, right? But all that other stuff that you showed before you got to that is not differentiated. Everybody else does it. In fact, a really mature LMS would do it better. Mm-hmm. So you didn't teach me anything that encouraged me to buy. <laughs> so instead, we're going to do this pitch where we start with, our insight. This is how they pitch it. So they come in and they're like sitting across from the head of sales. Hey, head of sales enablement. Sales enablement is really important, right? Of course it is, buddy. I'm the head of sales enablement. You know why it's important? It's important because every day your reps not making quota costs you money. A lot of money, actually. How many reps you got this much? I could actually calculate it for you. It's a lot, right? It's a lot. So the head of sales enablement is going to go, yeah, you're right. Okay. So let's look at how you got choices, how you could solve this problem, right? You got to get your reps enabled. You could use a CMS, put everything together and make sure they got the right version and whatever. And that's great. Can you measure the impact of that though? No, you can't actually. And then, and then you could put out an LMS and then you could train everybody and get them certified and all that stuff. But can we actually tell if the training was working? No. In fact, if we really wanted to, do sales enablement properly, we'd want sales enablement where I could prove the results of it. So I'd actually want sales enablement where I could measure 
how did it impact my sales metrics? Right now, if you say, right, I got you because mm-hmm. <laughs> we're the only ones that do that. So <laughs> there's this little setup at the beginning where I'm getting us aligned on the worldview. Right. And so it's not problem solution, which what a lot of people do is like, oh, you got to get your reps trained. Well, yeah, all those, every solution solves that problem. Right. But what you want to get is I got this differentiated value. What do you need to understand in order to understand why my value is really important? I'm going to start with that. Every day your reps not making quotas cost you money. Mm, ah, yeah, you're right. So how do we measure the impact of that? Oh, look, none of these other solutions do that. So once I've got you aligned and say, look, like you want that, right? Then all I got to do is show how I do it. The rest of the pitch is, you know, let me show you how we do that. Here's what we do, here's to put it in, whatever. This is how we measure the results. This is how we can take those results and improve the training for the next round. Sell all day on that. Kind of the, the, the all-encompassing, like culminating question for you is given everything that we have just spoken about, what do you consider like the, the weaknesses or the shortcomings on websites that you visit? Yeah, my focus is positioning. Mm-hmm. I look at people's websites in a different way than customers would, <laughs> for mm-hmm. example. But but I feel like the primary job of the website, if we're talking B2B, is what is this thing? Who's it for? Why do I care? And if I can't figure that out really quick, I'm going to go away. So answering those questions is very specific to your audience. I've seen people do critiques of websites and say like, oh my gosh, there's all this jargon and, you know, like no one would understand what that is. And it's like, well, yeah, you would if you were a database administrator who is who they sell to. So I Mm -hmm. think jargon's fine. Right. And I think it's fine if nobody outside your target market can understand what the hell you are. That's fine. People will call me and say, what do you think of our website? And I'll say, I don't know. Like, I I can't evaluate it. I'm not your target market. Like, I'm thinking about my folks I was working with last week, cybersecurity for the gaming industry. Uh, It's okay if I don't understand their website. It's not for me. (laughs) If your target person lands there, do they get what you are? Do they get it's for you? And do they get why they should care? And then it's all the stuff around that, right? So if I'm in a purchase process or I'm trying to figure out who's landed on my short list, what information do I need to make that decision to put you on the short list? And so is it giving me all of that? April, this has been great. One final question. Are, are there any upcoming events uh, that you're going to be taking part of that you want listeners to know about? Uh, let me see. What do I have coming up that's fun? I'm going to Turing Fest in Edinburgh. Cool. And uh, in July, in June, the end of June, last week of June, highly recommend this conference. Very fun. Edinburgh's very good. I was there last year and literally had the best time of my life. I, hear like, I had things. so much fun. It was, it was, it was difficult to recover. So <laughs> <Sure>. that because <laughs> it was so good last time. I'm coming back again this time. Um, and uh, obviously, everybody, if you haven't read her book, obviously, awesome. Um, the preeminent book on positioning at the moment. Um, A fantastic read. April, again, thanks. This has been great. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for having me.